Welcome to The Gathering Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, this morning I want to just ask a simple question. How are you doing this morning on day seven of the 21 days of hunger, the fast? Few of us are doing okay. Few of us are maybe a little bit hungry right now. But as I said last week, we don't want you just to be hungry in the natural but to be hungry in the Spirit, to be hungry for more of God. And, and our prayer and our continual prayer in this time is, God, that we may see you more clearly, that we may know you more deeply, that we would have a hunger that would, that would come from the depths of who we are, that we would desire to see your face. And this is really what our fast is meant to be. And, and over the last couple of days, last week, we've had a couple of questions about what to fast and how long to fast and and all those things. And I think those things can be important in a fast. But more so than that, the reason why we fast is the thing that we need to focus on. Because the thing about fasting is that we are not fasting in the natural in order to achieve something. We are fasting from a place of a recognition of who God is. And from that place of recognizing the goodness of God, out of this place of recognizing the the beauty of our Father in heaven, it's from that place and that recognition that we make the decision to lay something down and to say, God, I want to seek you. I want to know you. It's from a place of, of just being able to recognize how amazing he is. And this is what we saw last week. When we looked at the example of three different individuals, of Moses, of Elijah, and Jesus himself, we saw that as Moses was on the mountain and he experienced God, there was this conversation that took place where Moses said, okay, uh, we want to go forward. And God said, well, you go forward, but you're going to do it without me. Because if I were to go with you, I'm going to kill you all. That's what God said. Like, I'm going to wipe you out. But Moses speaks to God and he says, well, God, you know, it's great that we're going to go to the promised land. But if we don't go with you, if your presence doesn't come with us, we're not going anywhere. If your presence does not go with us, we are not leaving this place. Because what is it that will set us apart? What is it that will mark us? How will they know that we are yours unless your presence goes with us. The interaction is amazing because then Moses asks to see more of the glory of God and God says, okay, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to allow my glory to pass by you. And Moses is able to see God in a greater level to a greater extent. It's a beautiful thing. But out of a response to seeing the glory of God, what does Moses do? He goes into a place of fasting. He doesn't fast to be able to experience God. He sees God, and out of that place, he steps into a a new level of fasting and, and spending that time with God on the mountain. You see, our fasts, really, we could talk about what a fast is, but let's quickly talk about what a fast is not. A fast is not a way to earn extra credit with God. I feel like sometimes it's like, hey, we're going to fast, and when I get to heaven, I'll have a couple extra like jewels in my crown when I get up there. That's not what fasting is. Fasting is not a method of penance or paying off spiritual debt. We don't fast in an effort to achieve something 
or because others around us are doing it. We don't fast in an effort to diet. That's important. And we don't fast to kill addictions to social media or anything else for that matter. That's not the reasons why we're fasting. We do not fast because we are trying to accomplish something through our flesh, self-effort, or superior willpower. Because as with everything in our walk with God, our starting place is from a recognition of who he is. That's our starting place. So whether you're fasting completely, doing a Daniel fast, doing a fast from sunup to sundown, I want to encourage you to recognize that our starting place is always gratitude. It's always a recognition of God. I have the ability to do this so that I could see you with greater clarity, so that I could know you more and see you for who you really are. You see, as we've been talking about hunger over the last couple of weeks, we've been taking the time to look at the story of the Hebrew people, of the Israelites. Now, we started the story when they were in Egypt. They were on their way out of Egypt being delivered in the Exodus, and and Moses goes with them, and they come up to the Red Sea, and there's the miracle of the Red Sea. They come up to Mount Sinai, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's darkness, and there's smoke, and all of the things that would say, hey, this is fun, come near me. No, it frightens the Hebrew people, and they say, Moses, we can't do this. We want you to go do this, and we want you to be our spokesperson, and so Moses enters into the deep darkness where he knows God is. But as we're looking at this story, we would hope that the Hebrew people would learn their lesson, that they would, that they would learn from the many mistakes, that creating the golden calf and all of those things. But as we know, because of their disobedience, because of their, their lack of faith, they do not enter into the promised land. We see their history as an opportunity for us to learn, not necessarily from any of their success, but rather from the places of failure. And isn't that what history often is? History is looking back at the past and seeing the victories, but also learning from the failures and learning from the places where people didn't quite get it right. Do we have any history lovers in here besides me? A couple of us? See, for me, I didn't really like math in school. It wasn't my thing. Science was fun sometimes, especially when we got to dissect things. That's when I enjoyed science. But history to me was this thing where we could look and we could see victories and battles, where we could see God's sovereign will being orchestrated through humanity, where we could see uh, amazing things that took place, including the founding of our nation. Like History is an amazing thing. But as we look back in history, we really have to pay attention to the places that, well, there was a call of God, there was something going on, there was a response that was necessary And to see the people that said yes and the people that failed to do so. One of these amazing stories for me is found in a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Did I get it right, Pastor Jeff? That's okay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is how we know him. And last year I read a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and I really recommend it. It was by Eric Metaxas. And uh, it was about the life of of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It really was an amazing book. Um, If you want to listen to it, it takes about 24 hours. So just know if you're like investing in this, it is an investment of time. But I'm going to give you some of the cliff notes here today because I truly feel that the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one that we need to pay attention to in the time that we're living in. 
So Dietrich is known for a few things, but most importantly, he is known for standing up in opposition to Hitler and the Nazi regime. He was born in 1906 to a wealthy family in Germany. It wasn't really a religious family. It did have some religious roots on his mom's side. There were some ministers on that side, but really, for the most part, the only religion they had was in their music. And Dietrich really took to the music, and he became a skilled musician at the age of eight. He was somewhat of a prodigy. He was playing music at age eight, and at age 12, some of his music was actually being played in the Philharmonic at 12 years old. It's pretty incredible. But even this, you know, this was to be expected in his family because his family, they really achieved a lot. His brothers were lawyers or or doctors or professors. His dad was a psychiatrist and a neurologist. They really had high expectations for what Dietrich was going to become. And he was going along those lines, but there was something that happened in his life that changed everything. You see, his older brother, uh, two of his older brothers went off to war. And in 1918, when Dietrich was 12 years old, his oldest brother was killed in the war. At this time, this led Dietrich down a path of desiring to have greater understanding and to search for deeper meaning. And by age 14, he decided that he would be a theologian and a minister. This was a pretty special thing at 14 years old. But it wasn't something that was applauded by his family. It was something that was ridiculed by his family because it wasn't looked at as being a profession that was really notable. But he still kept going after this and he pursued ministry and started ministry schools and and did theology work. And he actually came to America and to specifically to New York in 1930 and 1939. You may not know it, but if you've been to a few places in New York City, you may have been to actual places where Dietrich Bonhoeffer walked. But in his time here, he was left a little bit disappointed by some of the churches of that day. There was a specific African-American church, if I remember correctly, in Harlem, though, that he felt the presence of God, and, and he was able to experience what God was doing in that time, and it was a very meaningful and notable time in his life. But the thing about Dietrich is that he did not want to stay in the comfort of America while there was a battle and a war going on in his home country. And so he left the comfort of America to go back to that place. You see, Dietrich, as I said, was known for opposition to Hitler. And when we look back at history in 2024, it it would be easy to look back at the people of Germany and to judge them for following after this evil man. You see, we know now who Hitler was what the Nazi regime would actually lead to. We know about the murder of millions of Jewish people and others as well. But at that time, they were coming out of World War I. Their country had faced a massive defeat. They were penalized heavily. Their country was kind of left in ruins. And up comes this man named Hitler, who's promising to restore the nation back to what it was. Promising to right the wrongs that had been done to them. And so as you can imagine, this country that is devastated finds this hero that is raising up and and many people would follow him and the nation would, would follow after him like sheep. But there were a few who recognized that something wasn't right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of them. As Hitler was rising to power, Dietrich was sounding the alarm. But not just in culture, he was sounding the alarm in the church. But the problem was that the church was going along with everybody else. The church 
was remaining silent in that time. You see, many chose not to speak because there was fear. Not fear of God, but fear of deviating from the popular opinion of culture in that time. Fear of losing respect in the eyes of others, and yes, fear of retribution. And because of this, the church in large part remained silent. See, when I read this story, and any story like it, this always strikes a chord with me. The church is never meant to remain silent when evil is present. To me, it's one of the greatest failures that I could ever imagine. For the church to remain silent in the time of the Nazis. And not just with the Nazis, but to remain silent in other times of history. As in the time where there was slavery that was taking place around the world and in our nation. When there's been genocides around the world, we see the church actually going along with culture and and in a, a backwards kind of way endorsing the evil that is going on when they kept their mouth shut. Tomorrow we celebrate the birth of Martin Luther King Jr. And when I read the story of Martin Luther King Jr., we know that he stood up against the evil of the day, against the persecution that was taking place. He stood up against the injustice that was, that was so prevalent in that time. But what I didn't know is that his father, when he was a young boy, went to Germany. And that their lives actually, the time frame actually intersected with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, his father went to Germany and saw the Nazi party and what was going on and was so impacted by it that he came back and along with others drafted a a letter talking about the, the discrimination and how it would be looked down and it wouldn't be accepted in the church of America. But also while he was there, he learned about this man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther obviously was the one behind the Protestant Reformation, a very significant figure in the church of Germany. Well, when Martin Luther King's father came back from Germany, he changed his name to Martin Luther King. And he changed the name of his five-year-old son to Martin Luther King Jr. See, there was this interesting connection of what was going on. And and for me, it's incredible to look back in history and to see how these two men stood up for what was right in the face of evil. That even though culture was saying one thing and, and all the money was behind one thing and all of the popularity was moving in this direction, these men stood up and said, we are not going to go along with something because everybody else is doing it, but we are going to stand on our faith. We are going to understand that God has placed us here for such a time as this. So often the church feels like it's pressured to stay in its lane to keep its mouth shut, to not speak up because of fear of ridicule, to not speak out because it's not popular, to not speak because, well, there's an incorrect interpretation of the separation of church and state, where we feel like the church is not meant to have a voice, but rather the, the, the thought behind the separation of church and state was for the government not to have an impact in the church. That, that the church was still meant to be the ones who would stand on truth and would lead and guide our nation by being founded in the Word of God and in Scripture. But still so often we hear this term thrown around like it's, it's meant to keep our mouth shut. And the church often goes along with it. But this can't be any longer. You see, the church must not only have a voice, but it must be willing 
to use it. See, when the church remains silent, there are always going to be other voices that would be more than happy to take its place. And they have. And they continue to. See, the church is meant to be the ones who are not just the image and the reflection of God, but meant to be the ones who would speak in accordance with what God is saying right now. To be those who would go deeper in their relationship with Him, to have a greater understanding of what He's saying and what He's doing, and to live that out for the world to see. Unfortunately, in many places, the voice of the church has been replaced with words and ideologies centered around inclusion, tolerance, and affirmation. But the question is, what is it that we as the church have become inclusive of, tolerant of? What have we affirmed? And is it in alignment with Scripture? Or is it in alignment with the world and the culture that we live in? The church must find its voice again. But just hear me, when I say voice... I'm not speaking about speaking out of the understanding of man. I'm talking about speaking out of the truth of the word of God. This is the word that must be in our mouth. But first, before it gets to our mouth, it has to get into our spirit. It has to infiltrate the deepest parts of who we are so that when we speak out of the abundance of the heart will come the truth of the word of God. See, we need to know as the church, what God is saying, or else we will never respond in the way that He has called us to. He has placed us here right now in this time for a reason. But if we live unaware of this reality, we will often miss what He is doing. We will often sit by as maybe others step up, but when we have been called to step up ourselves. We have to have an understanding of who God is, not based out of society, but based out of a reverent fear, respect, and awe for who He really is. It has to be based out of an understanding that we're called to walk in obedience even when we don't understand. This is why I love that picture of Moses going into the darkness. We don't know that he understood everything that was taking place, but he knew God was there, and that's the place that he stepped into. I just want to read this morning from Galatians chapter 1, because this is a letter that Paul writes to the the churches of Galatia, and, and he speaks a truth to them that is so important for us to see here today. It starts in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's at that point, though, where the pleasantries end, because Paul is about to get serious. He says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Just, Just hear those two words today. A different gospel. You're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Hear what he's saying in this. 
When there is a different gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is diluted, when it is watered down, when it is taken out of the context of what it is meant to be, when it's added to and changed, it is no longer the gospel. It ceases to be the gospel. It ceases to have the power for transformation. It ceases to be what God delivered it to be to each one of us. And we have to be aware when there is a different gospel that is being preached. He says, evidently some people are throwing you into a confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. That word pervert, that's what's happening right now in many ways. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. This is strong language from Paul for a reason. He says, even if I show up and I say something that's contrary to the gospel that I preached, let me be cursed. If an angel comes and preaches a different gospel than the one that I preached and you accepted, then let a curse come on them because the truth of the gospel is the truth of the gospel and it cannot be altered or perverted by men. Listen to this verse in verse 10. He said, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's take those words to heart today. If we're out there trying to win friends and influence people by using a different gospel than the gospel that is given to us in Scripture, then we should no longer consider ourselves a servant of Christ. It's a serious call that we have as believers in Jesus to know his word, to preach his word, to live his word, not to please men. I have to be honest, and I'm not one who is wanting to bash other churches, to engage in friendly fire, to call people out, but I have to say that there are a lot of churches of today that are preaching a different gospel that are preaching a watered-down gospel that is meant to win over people to please man instead of pleasing God. There are standards that we know to be true that there are churches, prevalent churches, prominent churches in our nation right now that have deviated from the truth of the gospel. But the church... The church of Christ is meant to stand on the Word of God and to uphold the standard that Jesus has spoken to us. That is who we're called to be. Paul goes on to say in verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me just say this today. The source matters. If you were to hear that your favorite restaurant down the street had failed its health inspection, how likely would you be to go back to that place and enjoy a big dinner? Some of us are like, well, it depends on how hungry I was at the moment. But if we don't know the source of what we are taking in, then we had better be leery of of what we're going to get out of it. We do this a lot with our food, unknowingly. We eat a lot of food as long as there's a nice label on it. Sometimes it doesn't matter what's in it. 
as long as it looks pretty. Can I tell you that some people have done that with the gospel? Taken the truth of the word of God, put a nice label over it, called it inclusive, called it affirming, called it, you know, this is what we're supposed to be. But the source is not the revelation of Jesus Christ. The source is, is from man and the understanding of man. We have to be aware of the source. Paul said, my source is not from anyone else. It was taught to me. It wasn't taught to me. It was received by the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Paul was talking about in this chapter in Galatians was the fact that there were new believers who were coming to Christ who were Gentiles, and they were coming to learn about Jesus and coming and being converted, but the church was made up by those who had followed the Hebrew faith, the Jewish faith. And so they were telling these new believers, okay, if you're not circumcised, you better go get circumcised. If you're not following all these laws and all these rituals, then you better go do that because you can't really be a Christian unless you do all these other things first. What were they doing? They were adding their own understanding their own works, their, their own self-effort to the gospel. And Paul said, no, that is no longer the gospel. That is no longer the truth of what Jesus did for us because it is not through the flesh that we gained our salvation. It is not through circumcision. It's not through following dietary restrictions. It is through the grace of God. It is through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he said to them, this is not going to fly. And if you are accepting a gospel different from the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, then you are seriously mistaken. Now, how does this apply to us today? We have to understand that we cannot allow the true gospel of God to be diluted and perverted, perverted and watered down by anything else, by any other gospel. We have to know that our truth is dictated by Jesus Christ. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or God? Winston Churchill said this, and he was on the other side of the battle against Hitler. He said, truth is incontrovertible. Panic may resent it. Ignorance may deride it. Malice may distort it. But there it is. This word incontrovertible, it means unquestionable, undeniable, impossible to dispute or argue against. And that's what truth is. But as true as truth may be, it doesn't always stop us from turning our attention to something else. You see, truth is truth. And one day we will all stand before Jesus and we will know truth without any question without any pretense, without any other ideology. But while we're here on this earth, it becomes more convenient often to choose to look the other way. And often, as we look the other way, we try to bring others along with us because we don't want to be alone in ignoring what's going on. So we create these bubbles and these groups of people who are all looking in a different direction instead of looking at the truth of the gospel. Uh, truth is truth, but if we don't look at truth, then how do we allow the truth to impact our lives? And this is absolutely true in a spiritual sense, but it's also true in the natural. You see, for Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others, they were not content to allow truth to be distorted and to allow the church of Germany to go along with it and to bow their knee to evil. 
But instead, they said, no, we know the truth. We know that this is not right, and we are going to do something about it. So they actually went on to create a new church called the Confessing Church. They went on to actually separate from the church of that day because they could no longer go along with what was going on. Now, now the question is, you know, why do we bring this up today? And is this actually happening on some level right now in the time that we're living in? You see, for them, they may not have known much about Hitler, but, well, we have different technology than they did. We can pull out our cell phone and we can get information from around the world in milliseconds. If it takes three seconds for something to load on our phone, we're like, hey, time to trade this in. That took too long. We have the ability to know truth like never before, but in many ways our nation still buries its head in the sand, unwilling to pursue actual truth because it's uncomfortable or inconvenient or maybe downright scary. But there needs to be those who would stand for the truth. And I'm not just talking about the well-known issues of our day. We know the big ones. We know the truth about abortion, about homosexuality, about gender identity. We know the standard that the scripture sets for us, even if other churches will not stand by it. We know what the Bible says. And in truth, we have done a pretty good job of talking about these things at times, not always the best way, because this truth needs to be spoken. But these truths, when they are spoken, they need to be done with the wisdom and the discernment of the Holy Spirit. When I say speak truth, I am not saying stand up and condemn those who are struggling in dealing with things that we don't understand. When I say that we are called to be the voice of truth, it is not to condemn or to bring judgment against, but it is to allow the Holy Spirit to work through our lives, to bring love and restoration and redemption through the true gospel of Jesus. To hold the standard and to walk in love. You know, we could do both of those things. We need to do both of those things, right? Those issues, they matter. But those are not the issues that I'm even talking about today because we see those more often. But what about the other things that are taking place in our nation right now? What about the other places where the church has stayed in its lane and, and kept its mouth shut about? What about the indoctrination of our young people in the universities of our nation? that push an agenda, that push a specific agenda towards socialism and towards all these other things that don't work. And then we send our kids to these universities and we wonder why they come back with a different way of thinking than the way that they were raised. What about the attack in our nation on free speech? They'll say we have free speech unless it doesn't line up with the free speech that they want us to have. What about the poisoned well of information that we call the mainstream media that has a clear agenda? And yet, for much of the church, we go to mainstream media more than we go to the truth of Scripture. If our starting place is to receive information from the world and then to find out what God's saying, we have the order backwards. If we go to the world to find out what's going on through their lens, through their thought process, through what they think is right, 
And then we take our information from that. We are receiving from the world before we receive from God. And where is the strategy in that? We cannot go to these places with clear agendas and think that we are going to receive truth. Hmm. Hmm. I'm not saying don't ever know what's going on. It's important to know what's going on. But make sure you know the source of your information. Make sure you know who's cooking the food. Make sure you know what they're putting in it. What about the lack of accountability for our representatives in government? The district attorneys that won't prosecute, the government agencies that are being weaponized against the people of America. The handing over of control to China and other nations who simply do not have our best interests in mind. And yet we keep handing over control and more control and more control. And it's one thing for China not to like America, at least their government. But what about within our own nation, this growing and this increase of of disliking America from within? If God has placed you in America, if God has brought you to this nation then I need to tell you that you need to stand in the Spirit for what God is going to do in this nation instead of adopting an ideology from the world around us that is condemning America. That is true of America. That is true of whatever nation that you reside in. If you're watching online, we are called for a purpose, for a time, and we've been put in a place for a reason. And we need to stand on the truth of what God is wanting to do, understanding that our nation is not perfect. We have our faults. We have our history. But as with each one of us, God is the one who brought us to being, brought us to life, and has a purpose and a plan for our life, and China for that matter. We need to be the ones who are willing to stand on the truth. I just want to quickly go back to the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer because while there were many that went along with the, the lies of the enemy in that time, there were those that stood for truth. And I mentioned that they started their own church called the Confessing Church because the church of that day, and, and I want you to listen to this, they sought to create a positive Christianity. I don't know about you, but those words kind of make me a little bit sick. Like, it's nice to say positive Christianity. We should be positive people. Should we be loving? Should we be filled with hope? Yes. But a positive Christianity? Tell that to all of the men and women who are giving their lives around the world right now, being killed and murdered for their faith. Tell that to the martyrs of the the early church that they just needed to be more positive and everything would be okay. But the positive Christianity meant they were going along with the Nazi agenda. They removed the places in the Bible that they didn't agree with. They removed all of the Jewish heritage because they didn't want to paint a good picture of the Jewish people. They put pressure on the leaders. They removed the people that they didn't want. They made them sign documents of, of who they would be and who they would put in leadership. And that was the way that they infiltrated the church. But, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others, they said, no, we're not going to do that. And they stood strong. Now, the question once again is, how does that impact us here today? Am I suggesting today that we are facing an evil as big as the Nazi uh, regime? In some ways, yes, and, and maybe not yet, okay? But there is the same evil behind it, the same father of lies behind it. 
Am I trying to be dramatic here? Am I trying just to get your attention? I'm not just trying to be dramatic here today. But if we think that the evil of history cannot and will not repeat itself, then we're not paying attention. If we're not aware of what took place in the past, then we are destined to repeat it. You see, it would be easy for us to look around and say, well, that would never happen today. That would never happen in America. That would never happen in the church. Well, let me just draw your attention to something that happened two or three months ago. This was in the Catholic Church. But two months ago, I think it was in November, Pope Francis removed a Texas bishop from his position after an investigation ordered by the Vatican. The name of the bishop was Joseph E. Strickland. Why? Because he had the audacity to stand on the Word of God and what it said about life. To question the leadership of our nation, to question our president for being a practicing Catholic and going in agreement with abortion. He he said it's a dark day when, when the Catholic Church and Planned Parenthood are standing in unison together. He had the audacity to question what was going on, and because of this, the Pope the Catholic Church removed his authority from him. Now, now he's a bishop. There are other priests underneath him. And I wonder what each one of them are thinking when their leadership is being attacked. When from the, the highest place of authority of the Catholic Church, they are removing the authority of individuals because they're not saying the things that they want them to say. And it wasn't just with this bishop. There was another one before, and this is happening constantly. Well, let me ask, what did the Nazi regime do in the church back when they were around? Well, they did a couple of things. Number one, they controlled and they censored. They wanted to make sure that the the messages being preached from the pulpit were in alignment with their messaging. If you don't think there is a time where there are going to be those listening to the messages that we're speaking, coming in to correct what we're saying, if it doesn't line up with their ideology, that they can determine that it's hate speech and try to censor what we're saying. Number two, the removal of clergy. We just saw that happening. Number three, the restriction of worship. They would come in and shut down places of worship. I don't know if you remember this. A couple years ago, when the pastors were being arrested because they were worshiping during the pandemic. Right? Can I tell you something? That when the government takes more power, they don't give it back. When they set a precedent, they don't go back on it. And this is what was happening in our nation. Churches being shut down. Can I tell you that at that moment, my eyes were not fully opened? But I have since become more aware of what's going on in our nation. We cannot allow the church to give up its authority and its ability to stand, no matter the darkest times, no matter what the pressure that is coming from any other place. And finally, there was the persecution of church members, and that happened as well, being threatened to be fined if you went to church. Now, if we don't see the road from where we are to being able to go into a place that looks a lot like that, then we're not paying attention. You see, there have been those that have stood for their faith, and they have been persecuted. There have been college, uh, high school football coaches and teachers that have lost their jobs because they've had the audacity to pray in school. And sometimes we think, well, that's bad, but I mean, it's not really going to go any further than there. The truth is it never stops there. And if we are not aware as the church, we will be just as divided as the church of Germany. 
There may be a segment who is willing to stand for truth, but being weakened by the rest of the church that's willing just to go along with whatever culture is saying, with whatever the powers that be are dictating. We cannot be that as the church. If we have been placed here for such a time as this, we must know why we are here. We must know who we are. We must know what we have been called to do. And in this time, in these 21 days of hunger, we are called to be seeking to know him like never before. That we would seek to know who he is and where he has placed us and what he has called us to do and what is our responsibility. You see, we can't just be a church that is content with coming and meeting once a week or twice a week. We can't be the church that is content in checking a box every once in a while. Hey, I went to church. My spiritual part is complete. Now let me go do the thing I was doing before. That is not the church. That is, that is membership in an organization. That is not the church of Jesus Christ. That is not the example that he gave for us as he laid down his life for us. And so the question we have to ask today and going forward is what kind of church do we want to be? What is this church going to be known as? Are we going to be a church that stands for truth? Or are we going to be a church that kind of tempers what we say because we're afraid of what, what the culture around us might think? Are we speaking because we want to uh, earn the approval of men or of God? Is this church going to be a church that stands as a beacon on a hill in the midst of darkness? We have been called for such a time as this. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? We are the church. We bring the church. When we, when we come together, it is a unifying action of bringing what God has placed in each one of us and bringing it together. We must be the church that comes together in unity on the truth of God. Because when things start to shake, as they have, as things begin to become more uncertain, which they will, I'm not saying anything to, to frighten anyone here today, but let's just be honest. Let's look at where things are heading. This is not fear of man. This is not fear of circumstances. This is fear of God. We need to be prepared and we have to know where our foundation is. This may never happen in your lifetime. It may never happen in my lifetime. But regardless of where we find ourselves, we have to know that our foundation is strong and secure. That it is founded in the truth of the word of God and what he has said to us.